absolutely ridiculous. Welcome to Around the Court Squash Podcast. A week ago on Saturday, Sarah Jane Perry stunned the world when, when she uh, stopped and came from Tulip down to be Hany El Hamami to claim the biggest title of her career to date. Roll the clock forward six days later on the last day of the squash festival, and against all odds, Tulip down and 4-1 down, Fred Suzuki repeated the same feat against Ali Farag to claim his biggest title to date. If I was a betting man, I'd be skint. My name is Arthur Gaskin, with me as ever is Christopher Sackley and Stuart Crawford, and we have a guest in the house, Hoos. In Gilly Lane, former US top ranked player and head pen coach. How are you doing, fellas? Good to oh, be good here. Oh, good to hear. A few days. Oh, yeah. Finally got Gilpin on the pod. I feel I'm delighted. I mean, I've been delighted asking. to spend Sunday with Gilly after <laughs> I spend Monday to Friday with him. It's exactly what we both wanted, right, Gil? 100%. I wouldn't have it any other way, Stu. Um, just, just good to, to see what you're up to uh, on the, the hour, hour and 10. I can't get a hold of you during the week. So. Uh, <laughs> It's just good to uh, good to be a part of the podcast, and um, it's awesome to see the three of you guys, uh, who I know pretty well, um, doing such a great job. And and uh, loved the the podcast last week with uh, Sarah Jane Perry. It was awesome. So great insight. So happy to be on. You Even told me you were refusing to lie uh, to listen until <laughs> we got you on as a guest. Yeah, I can't give away all my secrets to you, Stu. You know, we got to <laughs> leave something up for the imagination. In the hour you're podcasting, he's catching up on the pod. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so where do we begin fellas yeah i mean um obviously big story is Dasuki winning his biggest tournament of his career but not just winning it but the way he did it with some some huge wins against the reigning champion in gawad in the second round then he had a really great match against diego elias in the quarterfinals which um, I actually thought it might have been the best match of the tournament in terms of the quality of squash. Uh, and then he had another five-setter against uh, Tarek Moman in the semi-finals. And I think going into the final, there was very few people who would have been backing him to beat Ali after Ali had come through his semi-final relatively comfortably against Mustafa Asal. And then especially when he was two love down, I don't think you would have found anyone that would have been backing him at that point. So phenomenal performance all week from Dasuki and also just great to see him back at the level that he kind of showed that he was capable of before he had his uh, serious knee injury about uh, coming up to three years ago. Yeah, I mean, I was I was just really thrown off by how um, his demeanor changed from like the early rounds and then how kind of calm and settled and relaxed he looked in the final. Um kind of a little bit like we talked about with Sarah Jane Perry, how she doesn't seem to, she doesn't seem to panic when things aren't going her way. She just kind of keeps plugging away. And I wouldn't say that was Ferris's normal, uh, you know, normal um, mindset, but he looked super at ease fried uh, against Allie on in the final. And I thought Asal was kind of the opposite. He's usually looking pretty excited um, pretty jacked up, and, and he looked like he almost went the other way. Um, so it was kind of a cool contrast to see that in the semi and then the final. Obviously, exciting, exciting result. You know, for the winners, it was uh, it was kind of the same tournament, right? If you think about it, you know, SJ with a bunch of big upsets coming through. You know, she, she beats, you know, Tina in the round of 16, then Camille in the quarters, and then Joel in the semi, and then, you know, Hanya in the final. And, and, and you have Ferez who beats 
you know, the world number four, the world number seven, the world number three, and the world number one to kind of win his biggest, biggest uh, tournament ever. It's, it was, the writing a little bit was on the, it was kind of on the wall. I thought in a way you're like, Oh, if he's going to sneak this one, he's going to win this one. It's going to be this one, given what had happened in the, in the women's, in the women's tournament the week before. Um, It was interesting. You know, he, he, in the first, in the second, he looked like he was still getting into the match and, really kind of feeling out his body and kind of feeling out what was going to work. He was using the lob a ton, um, trying to take the air out of the ball and I think give himself some more time. And then um, I admittedly stopped watching it for one because I thought, I thought it was over and I, I kind of changed it, you know, did, did some other things and all of a sudden found out that he had won the third. And when I watched it back, the ball had just gone completely dead, which ended up playing into his, um, into his arsenal attacking shots. And, and he was able to kind of, change the change the the direction of the match and and um you know I'm really happy for him you know he's he's I've know I know him a little bit off court and I know he works extremely hard and and for him to break through in this kind of manner and, and in Egypt as well is, is a huge um testament to the work that he's put in but also to kind of coming back from a major injury and and you know putting himself in the world's top 10 and probably now in the top six I think you know when the new rankings come out um I think he's going to push up pretty high beast you know, it was good. I, I watched it. I didn't watch it live. And I was planning on watching it live after a day's teaching. And I had a couple of messages and I just thought, I'll, I'll have a look at the result. Obviously, you know, shocked. Couldn't believe it. But I, I watched it anyways. And at 2-love, a 4-1 down, I'm watching it knowing what the score is like. There is no way. There, <laughs> I, there, there's something wrong with, with the information I've been given. My internet's been reprogrammed to tell me the wrong results. That's just no way is this turning around. It's just unbelievable. And then it got to a point where in the fifth, you just couldn't see it any other way. There was a little bit of an element of, he just, he just let it, he just let go. Right. And he's just like, okay, let's go for it. And similar yeah. to SJ, it just, everything clicked. You yeah. know, one of the best things about the two wins from SJ and Ferez, like if Ali wins the, ma- the match, obviously he's going to be happy. And, but it's almost like a formality for him. He's as world number one, he's won so many major events, but Ferez, and for Sarah Jane to win their first major titles, you could just see, look at the joy on their face. <laughs> it was just unbelievable to see that pure joy of and experience enough in that situation for the very first time at, at that stage. Yeah, you see a massive weight like come off their shoulders, right? And they just like, yeah, it's just pure, pure joy, pure happiness. Yeah. I think for Ali as well, though, I mean, he, he kind of spoke, he alluded to it earlier in the tournament and, Definitely was a little edgy at the start of the first, but he alluded to having not won three tournaments in a row before kind of, and it's something that he hadn't done. It was kind of 15 matches straight. Uh, I could be wrong on the, on the numbers, but I think in a way, when you put that into your head, it doesn't matter who you are. You can start thinking, Oh my gosh, this is still a huge moment. And, you know, in terms of if, if you're on the betting side of that, you know, he's the odds on favorite, right? So that kind of pressure can get into anyone's mind. And I think sometimes too, when you, when you feel very comfortable in the first two games and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of cruising here. If you switch off for a second against a world-class player, it's really hard to get back in. And he talked about that in his, in his post-game interview that it was, you know, once he had lost the third, it was almost really tough for him to get back in. And then the fifth, Joey made a great comment and said, you know, it's, it's, it's really going to be, depend on Ferris's racket whether he slots a winner or if he puts the ball into the tin and, and, you know, 
I think it was around, they were five all right in the fifth, I think. Uh, and my, I could be wrong. And I think Farris hit four winners and, and three or four tens, you know, it was kind of off, off the racket, you know, it was dependent on what he was doing, but it was a, it was a unbelievably gutsy performance and uh, you could tell how happy he was, you know, with his uh, celebration. It certainly felt like once Farris got into the match that it was on his terms, he was the one dictating whether the rallies were ending in his winners or his errors. And I think the Sarah Jane Perry comparison is pretty similar there as well in her match with Hanya. Hanya was getting a lot of balls back, but you really felt like when Sarah Jane was, once they get into that rhythm and find that, that momentum, they're really hard to stop both of them. The other thing I think is great for, for the men's and the women's game with these results is that it's another big name in the mix for all these tournaments coming up whenever they happen. Because I think they're, they're both players that you would consider major threats in a one-off match to maybe cause an upset or knock one of the top four players out of the tournament. But until this point, they hadn't really demonstrated the consistency that they could do it in two or three or four matches that are required to win one of these events. So I think that's going to be making uh, that'll make the game even more exciting moving forward because you've got another name where it's like, well, is as far as or is Sarah Jane going to come through again and win this tournament? Well, anytime they're two loves on, you'd be you'd be wise to put a few bob on it because that's that's their plan. Just lure you into a false sense of security. You're two love up. You think you got me? No chance. Taking over <laughs> from Gawad on that. Yeah. Stu, you got some stats for us on Dasuki? Yeah, I have. I did a little bit of research. So um, he's obviously been around and at the top of the game for a good sort of four or five years these days. But um, I did a little bit of research. So he got up to his highest world ranking of uh, number eight in November of 2017. But that was also the same month that he tore his ACL against Dick James at the 2007 Hong Kong Open. And he was actually out for over a year, required surgery, didn't play a single match on tour in 2018. And then he came back um, at the start of 2019. Now his first tournament back, having bearing in mind he hasn't played a match for 14 months, it's a, I think a 50K event in India. He beat James Wilstrop in the semi-finals of his first tournament back and then lost to Tarek in five, who Tarek at the time was four in the world. Um, so that, that alone shows just how much talent he had, the fact that he can come back and play at that level so soon after surgery. I mean, we've seen with a player like Gauthier just how much of a struggle it's been. Obviously, he's a little bit older and it's maybe taking him a little bit longer to recover, regain his fitness and his speed and all those attributes that made him such a great player. But for Dasuki to do that so soon after coming back on tour, I thought was phenomenal. He then went on a couple of months after that and made the, the semi-finals in Ilguna which is a tournament he's done pretty well at in the past. But he beat uh, beat Miguel and Shabagi at that tournament before he lost to Gawad. Um, and then he's kind of just sat there. So within about three or four months, he seemed like he got back to the level he was at and then he was ready to push on. And I was just looking at who he's lost to in the last two years since he came back. Um, and you realise just how tough it is for these guys that are ranked outside the top eight that just keep coming up because he's not really... I mean, he's probably had one bad loss against the player ranked below him in the last two years, which was he lost to Kandra at the US Open uh, just over a year ago. But the only people that have beat him outside of that are... He's lost to Paul Call four times. Sorry, five times. He's lost to Gawad twice. He's lost to Tarek twice. He's lost to Farag. 
He's lost to Diego a couple of times. And he's always close. He lost to Marwan once and four. But he's only lost two matches in straight games in the last two years. So he lost to... One of those was the match last month against Paul Cole where he got bageled twice and basically gave up after losing the first. Um, and the other one was he lost to Diego at the Windy City Open earlier this year. But when you dig into the details, you see that he's really been close. He's been losing in four and five games to the top sort of five, six players in the world consistently. But because he's not seed, he's coming up against those guys fairly early and struggling to make a breakthrough. And it obviously came together finally this week. Um, and like we said, his ranking's probably going to go back into the top eight. He's probably going to be seeded in these tournaments that come in the new year whenever they happen. And I think you really have to consider him as a major threat going forward. Yeah, when you look at the the, the, the Egyptians, I'm just you know looking at the rankings now. I think there's a generational uh, kind of thing as well, where you know you have the younger guys trying to break through, and and a lot of the top players in the world are are from Egypt. And you know you have with Ali, uh, Shobagi, and, and Tarek one, two, and three, and then Gawad at five, and and Marwan at six. You know, there's so many players trying. It's 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 pretty absurd. Um, you know trying to break through I think is always tough right so he's he's been knocking on the doorstep for for a really long time and like you said Stu uh one of the tough things is when you're outside of that top eight you know you, you're not guaranteed you, you could get a tough draw pretty early in a tournament so pretty you know for 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 him to to be able to go through I think I think Abu has had the same same issue as well coming up against really tough draws um over the past year and uh, I don't think anyone's questioning that he's a world-class talent. You know, it's just it's just getting the results and and uh, backing those up to to consistently get in get get that ranking up to a place where you, you are one of those top eight. And so fighting for those places is tough. And and a, and a win like this should give him a ton of confidence, knowing that he's beaten you know four four of the world's best on the trot and 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 can back it up. Hopefully, you know, in early part of 2021. We've talked about this in the past, Gilly, but be. Uh, fascinating to get your insight but we've debated whether the PSA should maybe extend the number of seeds to 16 just to give those guys in that 9 to 16 bracket a little bit extra protection as opposed to at the moment someone like Dasuki could play Farag in the first round or if there's a 48 draw and they both get buys in the first round then it would be the second round but do you feel like it would be beneficial for the tour to extend the seedings down to 16? Uh, it's a tough question because that- I love how they've they've changed it up so that there's been different matchups and how you you know the, the certain certain players get a uh, you know players outside the top sixteen you know may get a different draw or you know obviously it's it, it is the luck of the draw but it could be good it could be good to to maybe I wouldn't say protect the top sixteen but but do that I think um, you know uh, from a from a fan stand up you know point of view it. it sometimes it is good to see those, those early tough contests, you know, so you're not seeing um, first and second rounds, three love in 35 minutes. You got, you give, you give the fans that, you know, it, enjoy their squash, you know, when they're watching eight matches on the day, they want to see some, some fireworks. They want to see some, they want to, you know, they want to see a hotly contested match right off, right off the bat to kind of get the tournament going. So I can see the pros and cons for both. Um, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm playing, if I was playing and I was nine, nine through 16, I would, I would want that for sure. I would want to, that extended out. But I think as a fan of the game to have 
those tough matches early on and put the top seeds, um, you know, under some pressure early would be, I think is great for the game. And, and um, you have to be then ready from, from the first match onward, you know, to win a big, big, big event. And I think that's great. It, it protects the, it almost protects the top seeds if you don't let them come up against, cause look at right. Paul Cole drawing uh, a Saul early in a cup uh, or was the last one as it wasn't as early as this one, right? The no, last one, last one was the quarters because Asal had to come through against, I think it was Rosner and Wilstrop just to get to Paul. <laughs> yeah. So a guy like Rosner, right. Wasn't protected. Uh, and then now, you know, you had, had the number four in the world playing Mustafa Saul, who's, you know, probably playing at a top 10 level, even though he might be just ranked outside that. So yeah, it almost protects the top seeds just as much if you if you move those um, nine through sixteen around a little bit. But it is yeah, it is exciting. Uh, makes it definitely makes it harder to keep keep a spot in in either in uh, in the top five or in the top eight or or even ninth through sixteen, right? Because um, you're a nine through sixteen person and you got to come through a top top six seed to to earn that earn that right to get in there consistently. It's tough. But, you know, and, and, and every seeded player in the first round of, of the draw won. So no, no seed was upset in the first round of, of black ball, on the men's side at least. So um, all the seeds got through. Um, obviously, there were a couple of three twos. And, but I think, you know, it, 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 you know the, the phrase, you know, you got to beat everyone to win, you know, it holds true here in that you still got to go through everyone in the draw. And, and um, I, I like, you know, hope you see sometimes though that the same people are drawing this this you're getting the same match you know over and over again i talk think to camille every, about that <laughs> yeah. That? Talk camille to camille <laughs> yeah i mean getting the i think that's tough for some of the some of the players but i think for the fans they they want to see i think they want to see some um you know it's just uh, some battles between a couple players and see how it progresses over 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 the year so I think we discussed it previously. We sort of recognise the pros and cons as well. But I think it, I personally feel like if you're sitting at number nine in the world, it could be tough to break through if you keep having to come up against those guys above you in the second round as opposed to maybe getting a shot at them in the third round, which would be the, the last 16 of the, the bigger platinum events where there's 48 players. Last week 100%. was a little bit different because it was a 32 draw. Um but I, I just, if I was sitting at nine in the world and I kept having to play, I felt like I was playing like five through eight level, but I kept playing the top four in the second round. I'd be pretty pissed as my rankings dropping, despite the fact that I feel like I'm playing some of my best squash. It's tough at number nine. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd want to be? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, and you know, Gilly was mentioning all those all those names in the top seven right now, right? And then so you gotta you have to beat those guys to get in. But the thing that I've always thought watching Ferris is like, so in order to get into that top eight, you need to be elite, almost the best in the world at a, some of the things you're doing on court. And I mean, watching Ferris, like he does some things that not even many of those other guys do when like the way he flattens the ball out and it absolutely flies to the court. Like he hit so many winners um, in the final there or just kind of he creates some space and then when as soon as he gets space the ball's like gone it shoots through the court super flat 
And then with that, he's got that just speed onto the ball in the front and puts it in so, so sharp. And he really like was, he really didn't leave a drop off the side wall. It didn't look like, like Ali kind of kept having to just kind of to recounter chip it up. And um, yeah. So like, I think it, whether, whether you have to play a top seed or not, you, you definitely need to be one of the best in the world at some of the things you're doing out there in order to get into that top eight right now. I think, you know, one of the things with Ferez this week and we can marvel at his squash. I mean, it is unbelievable. But to come back in the very next event after he had, Stuart just mentioned in his stats, the double bagel where he gave up after a tough first game against Paul Cole. And the day previous when he beat Yusuf Ibrahim, he had confronted those who had said he was mentally not that great. Um, I can't remember the exact language that he used. And obviously the day after he said that, you know, it's almost like the law of attraction. He gets one bad decision, hits a ball in a tin, no worries. Next game, 0-0, zero, zero, bagel, bagel, cream cheese, bit of jam in there, all you, all you like. But to come back, there were so many moments in last week's event for Ferez where he could have, not that you would say he was within his rights. I mean, you're always within your rights, but he could have. You could have seen that it was very human to get distracted by a referee's decision, get distracted by the fact that he was playing so well, but his opponent was able to match him, like in particular those first couple of games with uh, Diego Elias. But he didn't. He hung in there, he dug deep, and then to almost magnify that, to be 2 love down and 4-1 down against Ali Farag, the world number one, the most consistent player that there has been, the most consistent challenger to Mohamed El Shabagi, as he said himself during his 10 years in the top you know, one two, three players in the world. I, I, that's, I mean, just get your head around that. Unbelievable. Yeah, Arthur, to your point, I think the biggest thing out there, I, I don't, Ferris is one of the most talented and he's physically, I mean, I mean, you look at him and he's an absolute, he's a tank. He's a beast. The biceps on the guy. Yeah. <laughs> the left biceps as well. Not like just the, the right. Huh? The Brooks <laughs> kept of squash. And he's so explosive. <laughs> and obviously he's an incredible athlete. I think everyone's just, I think over the course of, you know, as he's maturing, he's just, can he, if he keeps his head together, he's going to be there. If he, if he, if he, if he lets go of the little things that happen on court and he just sticks to his game plan and plays squash, he's going to be there. And I, and I think he did an unbelievable job of that. I think, I think he got, I think he and Asal, if we look at um, some of the decisions were, I think a little harsh in, towards them in a couple couple areas and I think that was based on but gilly, gilly. matches. As we said last week, sometimes you gotta give it you gotta give a wild horse a bit of tough love to tame yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and but but I think he he kept his he kept his head and and I think you know if, if anyone read his quote after you know the the eleven love, eleven love, I mean people were shocked that that happened, but he you know he kind of apologized and he said I I lost my head. I can't let that happen. I apologize to all the people out there watching and it's just it's definitely something that he's gone back to the drawing board as we said and worked on and he didn't let it affect him and and you have to be and that's hard i think if you look at um if you look at exceptional athletes you know over the course of time they all work on their mental game and there's all there's there's breakthroughs in every one of their careers that happen and i think he's going to be able to look back on on this period of time and say okay i've just navigated through a, an incredibly tough process got through it, been successful. I've, I've gone from really bad, right, to, you know, not a great showing that no one wants <laughs> to 
I, I just proved myself as world class. And I, I think uh, I think he'll look back on this time um, end of 2020 as maybe is the the starting point to to him getting into the top four in the world. I've been loving me tennis analogies now over the last uh, <laughs> period of time. And in 92, or maybe it might have been 93, Pete Sampras made the final of the US Open and actually had a similar act, kind of a reasonably close first set and just gave up. And he admitted that he gave up. But, you know, you're all the clock forward, not that long. And, you know, he won Wimbledon the following summer. He became world number one, dominated Wimbledon actually for seven of the next eight years, or six of the next seven. But seven yeah, of eight, I think. Seven of eight, there you go. Yeah, Krychek was the only one to conquer the conqueror on grass. But I think it just goes to show they're all unbelievable players. But there is, it's the mental part. And I know they all are working on it. But I think with Ferez, what's so impressive, even more impressive than what Sampras did, was the fact that he did it a couple of weeks later at his very next event. And there were so many obstacles in his way. And he completed every single one of them. And I was just so happy for him. Yeah. Ali and Ali handled it as as well like he always does, and um, obviously just an un- incredible person that represents our sport. And awesome. you know, I think the way in which he uh, he was in- incredibly classy as he always is um, in his speech and 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 saying great things about his opponent, and and just said, you know, I had it in the first two, and and then I did in the next three. And sometimes, you know, you, you just gotta you gotta say that the the guy was better on the day and um, Ali's always like that. And, you know, it, just admire the way in which he handles himself in defeat. Um, it's, it's, it's always at the highest level of just his, his sportsmanship's uh, unparalleled. And, um, you know, when we're talking about this tournament though, I think the one thing that we, it, it, we, we still have to realize as well is that three of the world's top 10 didn't play as well. Um, and just, I mean, the level of squash that was that was being played, and and with without you know, the Shervagi brothers not there, and and um and and Simon Rosner not there as well. I mean, um, the tours and tours in good hands, and and um you know, it's just great to see some some high high level squash at, at, in twenty twenty with with everything going on. And how do you? I mean, we're, we're talking about Dasuki as a potential top four player, and I think on the back of this week because no doubt that he does have but the problem is there's it feels like there's eight or ten guys that are top four potential and last time I checked there's only four of them can make the top four <laughs> one time. I mean I'm no expert on that on the math there but no the your math of, is good <laughs> Arthur, <laughs> Arthur might Arthur might let eight in there the top the top <laughs> half of the top four and the bottom half of the top four. that's it that's it you got two separate tournaments. <laughs> just got to use his math. You know, I think the other thing that maybe in, maybe in Ali's mind he didn't mention, but uh, with with Muhammad not playing, a win extends his his um, his lead as world number one, and so it's another opportunity to kind of move further move further away from that number two spot, um, and kind of create more distance. And you know that hasn't been talked about a ton, and and obviously. Right now, the only place really that's having tournaments is is in Egypt, and, and unfortunately, at the moment, you know, Muhammad can't can't play there. And 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 um, you know, as a squash fan of his, you know, we we, we love you know, and, and I know he was on the podcast, an unbelievable podcast, friend of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, but I love. I mean, he's I love watching him play, and you know, so and I know he's dying to get out there. You know, as knowing him personally. 
Um, he's, he's, he continues to, to change his game to make sure that, you know, he goes down as one of the best players to ever play. And I have a t- I so much respect for that and, and, and how he, how he trains and goes about his, goes about his business. But um, yeah, I mean, there is only four spots. I mean, it, it, <laughs> and, and with build with so many players from Egypt, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I, you look at that and you, you think, okay, does Egypt, should Egypt have uh, have a team match against each other, almost college style of uh, all its players and, and, and see who comes out on top. But um, it'd be uh, be a spectacle. That's for sure. You're involved so, in the uh, U S squash setup a little bit, Gilly, right? Um, you know, I, I am on, on, on the um, uh, basically we, we call it the under, it's like an, almost like an under 23. It's a, um, it's, it's a program for the college university students that are looking to play pro and, and looking to, to kind of maybe take that next step. And um, we've, we've called it the U.S. National Academy. Um, it was created by Rich Wade um, a couple of years ago when he was working with U.S. Squash and found that, you know, we didn't really have a pathway for some of the U.S. collegiate players to um, kind of take that next step and, and, and understand what playing professional squash is all about. So we've had you know, two week training camps in the summer. And, um, I've been a part of that now for the last four years. It's been, it's been exceptional. And, and now with, um, the Arlen Specter, you know, U S national training center, uh, being built in Philadelphia, um, you know, these, the, the next generation of U S players are going to have an unbelievable training base and, and platform to hopefully propel them into, into the PSA. And uh, that was just kind of my next question with your involvement in there. Um, and I know obviously this year is a bit different, but do you see any, youngsters coming through that have the potential to kind of maybe maybe it's breaking the Egyptian mold or, or at least sort of get putting a foot in there and putting their name putting their hands up to say hey look I'm here and I, I can represent and I'm, I'm part of this top eight top ten group is there a young yeah. US player I mean I think um, I think first off having the center it, it's going to make the idea of turning professional a, a regular thing I think you know I you know I, I played during a time where it was myself, Julian, and and Chris Gordon. We're really like the only three full time pros, and then, you know, we got Todd Harity and and Chris Hansen. We're kind of the next generation, and then I think this 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 next generation that's about to turn pro or that is already pro is 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 probably our one of our strongest junior generations on the on the men's side. I mean, I could talk about the women in a second because I think the women have an opportunity right now to be one of the top um, teams in the world, if we're talking about, you know, women's team event and, and want to get to that in a second, because I think um, we have such a bright future on that side. Um, I know we were talking about the men's now, but um, you know, Spencer Lovejoy is, he's already, you know, he's, he's won one PSA event, I think, I believe so far, or he's been in a final. Um, Timmy Brownell, who just graduated from Harvard is, is going to be playing full time. Um, Andrew Douglas, um, who will be graduating um, this spring, um, I, I think those three guys, um, those three guys, have the ability to 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 crack in, um, and they're already cracked into the top hundred. Some of them, but once they are full time and the tour gets going, have a have a great opportunity to break in the top top fifty, and then you see where they go. Um, you know, Arthur, I think you and you know as well as anyone. I think Stu does, and and Chris. Um, you know, it takes a couple of years for you to kind of get your feet wet. And, um, you know, your, your initial ability gets you to that first ranking. And then all of a sudden the hard work, you know, that two to three years of being on tour, getting the matches in, playing the leagues. Um, but I think the building of this center 
it professionalizes it even more for the players here in America. And it's going to give them an opportunity to, to really excel on the highest level. Um, can we, can they get up to the Egyptian standards? I don't, I don't see why not down the line if, if we're putting the resources behind players and, and players want to go do it. But at the end of the day, it's um, I feel like it's, it's up to the individual as well uh, that wants to go play pro and wants to put the time in and, and they need to have um, the mentality of, of, the mentality of these, uh, these top pros of, of going about and, and doing it on a daily basis. And um, it's not necessarily sometimes the most rewarding up front, but over the long time, it can, it can be rewarding. I, I mean, tell me if you think this is on track, Gilly, but I think like the, the mold that kind of Paul Cole set with, you know, making a huge jump from the age of 20 to where he is now is more of what the American and Canadian players have to do because how old is Mustafa Saul? 19. 19. So, so Andrew Douglas, Spencer Lovejoy, Timmy Brownell, these, these guys are all older than Mustafa Saul. So like it's, it's, and that, that's the tough part, right? I think is these guys, they need, if anyone is going to crack, you know, that, that top 20 or whatever, it's going to be a long-term process because there's a lot of guys younger than them with, with a ton more, maybe, you know, competitive, competitive experiences already. And then, and then, you know, they've probably just spent a lot more time in Egypt training a little bit more professionally up until that age. And the college, um, the college system's getting so much better. We've talked about it on the pod a couple of times with, with helping as a kind of platform to, or a springboard to the pros, but it's still, there's just a lot weighing on these kids when they're studying full time compared to, you know, what a Mustafa Saul has been doing for the last couple of years. So. No, a hundred percent. And I think that, I think, you know, you look at, Al, at Ali Farag, like, you know, he, he was in school for a couple of years and, you know, it, it wasn't, and, and he didn't tear up college squash. I mean, he had some, he had some losses in there. Yeah. He's the CSA individual champion, but you know, um, you know, he, he played Khalifa and I think, you know, Todd may have beaten him once or, you know, once during his time there, but, you know, I think everyone has a different process and a different path. And I think also, I think if those three believe in themselves and put the work in that they can, they can do some damage, um, you know, wh- whatever number that is, it's, you know, I think it's, it's, I don't know what, what the number is, but I know their talent level. And I've, having been around the three of them, I know that they have, um, the, the, the work ethic, the love of the game to, to, to do special things, um, as, as kind of a mindset going forward for, for North Americans as well. I think, you know, I think it's, it's, we're not, and, and, uh, and Arthur mentioned tennis earlier, there's not the financial rewards down the line in squash that there is, you know, in tennis or, you know, in golf, you know, I, I saw that, I mean, Dasuki won his first major tournament. He won $16,000. Like that's what his paycheck was, uh, you know? And so, um, but I think if you have that internal fire and, and, and that will to be wanting to be one of the best in the world, um, we have talented individuals in, in America and we, and in North America. I mean, if you look at the girls, the girls from, from the U S I mean, Amanda, Olivia, Sabrina, Olivia Fichter, Haley Mendez, Reham Sedke, like who's injured right now, but you know, she took Sarah Jane Perry to five. She took Hanya to five. Beat you know, Joel a few years ago. Beat right? Joel in, a, in an exhibition a few years ago. You know, 
we've shown on the, on the women's side that, that, that we have the talent, then it's world-class. Right. And we're right up there. Um, you know, and, and on the Canadian side, you have Danielle and, and you have Holly and you had Sam Cornette um, there as well. And, and it's, we're right there on the guy side, you know, it may take a little longer, but I think that we, we have the ability Careful to enough. do it. Chris's younger brother. <laughs> bring, bring, bring Nick, bring, bring Nick up there, man. Let him, yeah. let you don't want, him you don't want him coming after you, Gilly. <laughs> I don't want any piece of I don't want any piece of Nick. I think the only time I'd want to play Nick was when he was like 15 years old, but not now. I can tell you. Oh, that I, I just meant he's going to come try and beat you up, not. <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah, so just was, on so on the couch. I just got back to Canada last night. He's just we're having a nice, you know, a nice family time, and he's got he's got the the MMA fights up on his um up on his iPad while we're all sitting around lounging. Guy's crazy. <laughs> I think I hit with Nick once in my life, and it was the summer after he graduated college, which was just, I think I would choose that over when he was 15, because that summer after graduation, senior <laughs> spring, that was the yeah. perfect time to get him, and I'm glad I've never played him since. Yeah, um, yeah. that's the sweet just, spot. Right after senior week, you, you, you'll, you can pretty much back yourself against any college player after that senior spring and senior week. <laughs> summer camp ex- exhibition, like, <laughs> no pre- perfect, but... Just going back to your point, I mean, you could quite easily make the point that the U.S. women are already second in the world behind Egypt. Um, You've obviously got a few other countries up there like England and Malaysia have been strong for a few years. But in terms of the the depth, I I think you would struggle to find a better five players from any country than the top five in America. Um, And I think the other key point on what you were talking about, Gilly, with the college squash, 15 years ago, it really felt like it was a choice between do I want to play pro or do I want to play college squash? And it was a very much an either or because that four years in college was viewed as a barrier to, to playing pro. And I think what's become quite clear is that it no longer is a barrier. Yes, you may miss out on some exposure to, on the tour and some additional experience and you may be a few years behind, but the quality of competition that you get in college is a pretty damn good second to playing on the pro tour. And you also get a fantastic education and some of the coaching and training that is available in college squash is also just first class. Like the level of one of the challenges of turning pro at 18 is that you have very little income. You're trying to build a team around you, find coaches to work with, find like sports medicine, sports science. Most of the top, um, college programs provide that service. So it's a, it's a really good way of learning about how to train and how to manage your body and prepare to be a, a pro squash player once you turn 21 or 22 and also getting some really useful experience that's going to serve you well in the long term. And like I say, you might be a couple of years behind, but I think we've seen enough examples now that you can certainly make up for that time once you get on the tour. I'd be going to college if I was 18 again. It'll, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll toughen you up too. I think it, I would be remiss to not tell my, tell my favorite, uh, Gilly Lane story. He, he usually tells it before I can. Um, so I'm surprised here, but first, 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 uh, first big college road trip, you know, I'm a 18 year old freshman at Cornell. We jump on the bus down to, down to Pennsylvania. I think we might've played, um, F and M the night before. So I think it was technically my second college match, but 
but I, you know, dusted up, dusted up some guy in central PA feeling good. We're on the bus. And one of my teammates was from the, from the Philly area. Was um, Ian, Ian, right? Yeah. Shout out to easy. And, uh, you know, he's telling me, Oh man, this, this guy, this, this guy, Gilly, he's, he's so good. Like, you know, he dominated us junior squash and, and I, I remember Gilly a l- little bit um, from from like the U.S. Open. He'd always be one or you know one or one and a half kind of age groups ahead of me. And so I'm like just you know on the bus, kind of getting over to Penn, and I'm like I don't I don't care who this guy was in U.S. Junior Squash. You think that means anything to me? And I you know getting kind of jazzed up. And so I was confident. I was I was ready to go. And then I jump on court to start warming up. And the pen facility has been redone, but back in the day, it actually had two viewing levels, one just above the courts. And then it had a second one that was probably 20 to 25 feet up way above the back of the court. And that's where all the hooligans sat. So Gilly's got all his buddies lined up, you know, 25 feet above us. So you can't really see them because they're so high. And I step on and literally like the first ball I strike in the warm up, I hear like, go back to Canada, you loser. Like, <laughs> like, exactly who you think you are. And they're just laying into me from the, from the, from the knockup. And then all through, and then the first game, I think, you know, I'm, I'm so rattled. Like Gilly chops me nine love first game. Um, and then I think I finally got into it and gave him a bit of a match, but, uh, that was kind second, of the, well, second, that was the welcome game to was college. 10-8. Second yeah, game was 10-8. Second, yeah. Second game was 10-8. I went at a game ball and yeah, it was never, uh, never easy playing at Penn, but that was that was the welcome to college moment. That's kind of the cl- that's the most classic. You don't really get that as much anymore, though, eh, Gil? We kind of no, we've we've uh, we've toned that that we've 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 gotten that toned down a little bit. I think um, it was always good. It was it was always better playing at home. <laughs> I, I will say, I think I think we I think after that match. Had I think had we been on the same team, I mean Chris and I are really good friends now. But I think had we been on the same team, we'd have we would have been even even closer. Like it was, but Chris reminded me a lot of me. But Chris was <laughs> way better with the racket <laughs> than I was. So I had to. I was like, I think I was at the time. I was like, I'm going to show this freshman who's who's boss. Like I was a senior, and I was like, there's no way this hot shot freshman's coming in to beat me. But I do remember my buddies getting a little rowdy and. Um, <laughs> um they they used to hang up on the third floor and and um it was a it was a good home court advantage but it was the one and only time we've we've ever played a, a true match so um, yeah yeah i'm taking the 1-0 uh historical <laughs> record it, over, it, over and, i mean i can i can say this with like 100 percent certainty that those type of things like do make you pretty ma- you either sink or swim so by the time i was in my second year and i had a few experiences like that I kind of started thriving on being that bad guy and like, you know, I come, come back. It was obviously fun playing at home in front of your buddies. That's a different level of kind of gets you going, but, but uh, you know, coming back to Penn a couple years later and kind of like knowing what to expect and meet it, literally meeting the same type of characters up on the balcony against a, a little bit less worthy of an opponent, but, uh, but still you, you start to thrive on that stuff. And, uh, which, you know, not too different from, from the pros, like, you know, that level of kind of anxiety you experience. It's just, it's just from a different source. For sure. <laughs> I, uh, I always loved playing for, for team. The team uh, aspect for me was always when I played my best. So um, that's why I love it. Playing for the U.S. is always when I play my best. And 
but I do remember that match because um, <laughs> that someone actually told me after uh, I was like, you know, the only difference between you and that kid was that you were a senior and he was a freshman. I was like, wow, I'd like to think that I was the better squash player, but I, <laughs> but then I, I quickly realized that uh, that wasn't the case and he was actually right. So, well, yeah, you're a lot, a lot stronger than me. Oh, look at this, you boys, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah Gilly, Gilly had man quads on him from the time he was probably 14. I was just, I was a and young. Calves. I was probably, and man calves. Yeah, and man calves. I've played everyone on this, on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> it, I think it's probably, is it a yeah, three and all? What's, what's the record no, against these guys? I'm actually, so I've, the only person that's beaten me is uh, is, is uh, Stu. And, Go on, Stu, for the And Stu, uh, and Stu, <laughs> This is the, the the crazy part about this is we don't need to tell the story, Gilly. <laughs> and I drive him to Baltimore, Baltimore from Philly. First of all, he he hits with me in the after, in the morning and then takes me to his house for lunch. His mom makes me a beautiful <laughs> lunch before he drives me to Baltimore. He's the same. Drive him down, old school PSA. Draw the names out of the hat for qualifying. We draw each other, of course. We're playing each other in like four hours. He beats me. What three two? Uh, 3-1, I think. 3-1. I get back in my car and I drive home. And Stu's <laughs> basically like, hey, thanks for the ride. Thanks for lunch. Yeah. And then, thanks for the game. Yeah, and, thanks then I moved, the <laughs> and then I, the next time I played him, I moved. It was in Austria, I think. Um, it was three months I, later. I played him in Austria and I won that. And then we played in Denmark at the Danish Open. And I won that. Damn. We I got still it. have a losing record. Yeah, yeah. big time. Guy. Played Gaskin in Ireland. Yeah. Oh, on his home turf. Home turf, man. Galway but on, on the west, but on the west coast. On the west. Still, still, he ru- he runs that country. It's my funny. island. He's <laughs> champion. I, I own it. I own it. <laughs> Gilly, wow. Gilly mentioned that he played you once, and he he told me the tournament. So I looked it up. I have no recollection of this, but I played that tournament. I got through <laughs> qualifying as an unseeded player, so I was obviously playing well. I then play Rosner, who's the one seed in the first that's round. That's right. I don't know why he played that event. <laughs> it was, no, it was actually his, that's the first uh, PSA that he actually won. That's right. I, I do remember that. Because you and he, I played in the what? semi. That's right. Because I, you and I played in the semi, and then I lost to, to Rosner in the final. And I always remember that because I was like, "Oh, this guy's going to be up and coming. He's going to be top twenty for sure." But that was the first PSA he had ever won. So I, 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 I love. I, I take take great pleasure in knowing that I'm a part of, uh, his, you know, his first ever uh, PSA victory. Well, I also was part of that. I played him first round, lost, <laughs> lost 3-1, and I cannot for the life of me remember this match. <laughs> like, if you had asked me, have you ever played, like, who have you played in the top 10? There's a couple of names, but Rosner, I would be like, nah, I never played him. I wish I could. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. <laughs> and you have a great have, memory. And I also played him and got a game, so I have no idea how I've forgotten that match. <laughs> and even now that I know I've played him, I still can't remember it. I think Arthur, we're gonna have to make a road trip to Philly and try and uh, try and get our record better against Gilly for the the ATC pod crew. Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, I, I think we can do way, that. All I can say is the only way the record's going to improve is if you guys drive down because I ain't <laughs> helping. <it. laughs> well, you probably run there before you before you drive, anyways. <laughs> Just. I just had one final question, Gilly. You, you talked obviously about um, your own experiences in college squash and obviously you made the transition from there to PSA and now trying to help in your role with US squash and also in your pen role, obviously with the players at Penn. But 
is there any advice you would give based on your own personal experience on how you can sort of help that transition for the, the US players out there that are trying to make that transition? Yeah, and I think it's something that we're trying to make a transition to as a as a sport, right? And 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 everything that's going on in the world is that you know, when you go after and you go after um playing, you know, playing squash as a professional, right now there's it, it shouldn't be about the financial reward, I think, right right now. It should be about your own personal growth and and wanting to achieve something that's like in my mind bigger than yourself. It, you know, when you're trying to be the best in the world at something you have to sacrifice and you have to give up a lot to, to achieve that. And I think, um, I think sometimes when we get motivated by the financial aspect, we lose that. And I think in a sport like squash where, you know, I mean, very, we're trying to change this as a, as a, as a sport, but it's very country clubby and it's it, in America, you know, it's said to take a lot of money to, to play. And, you know, I think right away you want to reap the financial rewards. I think more importantly, when you're young, you should go out and, and try to achieve something that you can only do while you're young. The best advice that my, one of the best things that my dad ever said to me when I asked him said, Hey, are you okay with me going and trying to play professional squash? And he said, if, Gil, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. You never get another opportunity in your life to go and try to achieve something like that. And I lost a ton of money my first year off tour while my friends were making a lot of money living in New York city and, 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 and having a great time. But I was chasing something that to me was way, it was, it was more, it was worth way more than what they were making. It was the ability to kind of say that I was, I'm trying, I'm trying to chase this dream of being the best I can be and up against the world's best. And I think if we can take, if, if, if you take that kind of, um, think if you, if you think about it that way, then you forget about, you know, the finances and everything like that. And you can really focus on yourself and building yourself into the best squash player you can be. And, and then when you fi finish and hang it up, um, you can say, I really gave it a true go. And, and um, I really gave everything I had to be, to try to become one of the world's best at something. And I think, you know, for all those individual athletes to, when they look back on their career, they want to say, um, I gave it everything I had. I gave, I gave all the time I could. I achieved what I achieved because I sacrificed and, and had a great support group and things like that. And I think um, in America and, and when you come from certain places, I think that's hard to, to grasp initially, but if you can grasp that concept, it can take you a far away. Yeah. It, it takes, it takes a lot of head strength and like, um, and, and the ability to back yourself that you're, you're, okay with um being a little bit uncomfortable right like you're okay with not making money you're you're okay with not doing the taking the path that all your friends are and a lot of these top players uh coming out are are at ivy league schools where you know you have you do have the ability to get some good jobs and stuff so you have to really back yourself and really be um willing to and the other hard part is like the college life is, is pretty comfortable. You have a meal plan, you have a dorm, you have a bedroom, you know, and then the, that, that first year on tours, you, you know, pretty uncomfortable from, and I never experienced it, but uh, I know from, from all of you. It's a leaf out of uh, Robert Frostbrook. Yeah. yeah. Road less traveled, you know? Yeah. Uh, Amherst, hey, shout out to your former 
former uh, place of... But you're right. It's all about it's personal growth, personal development, throwing yourself out there, throwing yourself into the lines then, see where you come out at the other side. But either way, you've got a lifetime full of experiences. Uh, you meet so many new people. Like You stretch yourself personally. You stretch yourself professionally and you, it shapes who you are and equips you with the tools to become great at whatever you do in the aftermath of that, be it staying involved in the, in the game of squash and coaching, be it in Wall Street, you're very equipped to sort of deal with high-pressure situations because you've dealt with them when the chips are down and it's your money. And you know if you don't win, you're goosed. There's no rent being paid. There's no food on the table. Or maybe not as extreme as that. Sometimes it is. But you do certainly learn how to manage a lot of I mean, things. There's nothing like moving all your bags out uh, of, of your hotel room the day the day of the final round of qualifying because you don't know what the, whether you're going to stay there that night or not, but oh, you have to be geez. ready to go. So yeah. um, like Arthur said, it's, it's actually it was the greatest professional development uh, tool of my entire life. And um, I just feel thankful for doing it because honestly, I've, I've met people like the three of you guys and, and become very close with, with you guys. And, and um, yeah, it's just great. But, but I, you know. Appreciate it all. I think an important point, though, is that when you do approach it with that mindset or with that process and just enjoying what you're doing, it no longer feels like a sacrifice. And I think that's one of the challenges is recognize, like shifting away from feeling like you're making sacrifices to just recognizing that you're being given this opportunity to do the thing that you love. Like if you go back to, certainly I know when I was 15, if you had asked me, what do you want to do? I would have betting your hand off to be a professional squash player and not just for the few years I was on tour but to then go on and make a living out of the game and continue to coach and be involved um, helping other people to achieve their goals that whole life that it gives you when you approach it with that mindset is so valuable and you, you obviously aren't making the same amount of money as some of you you guys that have been to Ivy League schools and had that education and you see your friends go off and work in the city, but, but they're probably not getting to live their dream the way we are. So I think that's a really important aspect of it. Yeah, it's a way of life. It's not necessarily a sacrifice. Yeah. Happy, happy days, lads. Put that on a shirt. Put that on a shirt and trademark it. Wow. All right, guys. Well, listen, that's the end of the Squestival. And in, in the words of the wise man, Stuart Crawford, don't be sad it's over. Be grateful that it happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having, having us on and happy holidays, yeah? Happy Good holidays. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, that's your shirt, bro. You you came up with that. Like, <laughs> we, we can't take that. Um, but yeah, Giddy, legend, man. Thanks for coming on. Great to see yeah. you. Great to see you're doing well and uh, looking forward to a very prosperous 2021 and more social. For sure. All right, boys. Thanks. Looking forward to speaking to you again in at least two hours, Gilly. If Sounds not, good, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. guys. Cheers. Got some okay. actual work to do today. Jesus. Ooh. Jesus, man. You're looking stressed. <laughs> <laughs>